Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. And welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof. For the fall 2022 series of the Puberty Prof Podcast, episodes are focusing on the topics noted in the National Sexuality Education Standards. This specific episode focuses on the topic strand of consent and healthy relationships. To help explain what this topic is about and how to talk to young people about consent and healthy relationships, I invited Mike Domish, who is from the Center for Respect, is an international speaker and an author of three books and an award-winning DVD, in which, Mike, you beat me. I have one and a half books. I'm a co-author of one (laughs) book, and then I authored another one. So thank you so much for being here today. And would you mind saying hi to our audience? Absolutely. Hello, everybody. Thrilled to be here. Thanks, Lori, for having me on and really looking forward to diving into this conversation. Well, I thank you again for being here. You're currently working at the Center for Respect. The Center for Respect is an organization I founded uh, now going on over 20 years ago. At the, when we first founded it, it was the Date Safe Project and it evolved into the Center for Respect. And can I ask why you started the Center for Respect? Yes. So back when I first started speaking, uh, and I was, it was just me, a solo individual speaking, and they didn't have staff, they didn't have people helping out. People would say, well, it's Mike Domish, it's the Canada Case You program, that was the name of my speech. But what we found was that the books, the instruction guide, everything we were creating, people were like, oh, it's just an author. And we thought, well, what if we create organizations really focused on this topic that could serve and provide more materials? And so that's when we created the Date Safe Project. And then as we evolved, we realized, look, everything we're doing is actually focused on respect whether it's dating, workplace, wherever it is. And that's why we evolved into the Center for Respect. And may I ask, what is your background? Yes, my background is I'm the brother of a survivor, and this is where this all began. I was a college student, received a phone call that one of my sisters had been raped. And I was filled with rage, anger, confusion, hurt. And over time, I would recognize that there was something I could do about this, that instead of just being filled with all of those emotions, I could do something by speaking out. And I I learned that by seeing somebody else speak out. So I saw the strength and the courage of my sister and realized, hey, that inspired me to want to do more. And I started speaking in schools and it really grew from there. And that was now going back 30 years ago. Wow. And I'm so sorry that that happened to your sister. I appreciate that. She's doing great today. It's one of the things that we really talk about in my work is the strength and courage of survivors and the amazing lives they can lead. Would you mind letting us know what are the books and DVD that I referred to earlier? What are their titles and what are they about? Yes. So the one is out of print now because we evolved it to a different book. So there's really two nowadays. It's Voices of Courage, and that's 12 survivors sharing their stories. And that includes of all different sexual orientations, genders, and identities. My sister is one of the 12 survivors. It's very inspiring, very powerful. The other book is called Can I Kiss You? And that is all about healthy relationships, consent, really from 12 years and up. I mean, we have have 40 and 50-year-olds who are 
single or married who are using the book and then middle schools are using the book. So it has a wide net of an audience. So those are the two books. The DVD is called Help, My Teen is Dating, Real Solutions to Tough Conversations. And that is for parents specifically. Sometimes parents are like, oh, is that for me to give my kid? Nope, that's for you to sit down and watch. Uh, and what's funny is the response kids have watching their parents watch it. Like we've had parents reach out to us and say, my kid walked by, saw what you were saying and said, that's how I want to be talked to, not the way I've been. So it's been really powerful for parents to, to have that experience. And this is why I love connecting with other professionals in the field, because certainly parents and other caregivers need tools. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I created the Talk Puberty app and the Talk Before Sex app because I'm very passionate about people talking with one another on this topic. We don't always have it modeled in the media or within our own personal life with family members and friends. So people need tools out there. So that's great that you have the DVD. And what is it titled again? Help My Teen Is Dating. Excellent. It should really be called help. I have a kid, be, kid because a lot of parents <laughs> recognize you, you don't really want to wait till teen to watch that. But uh, if we were to retitle it, we probably would shift it a little bit. And I have to admit, one of the ways that I've spoken to parents and other caregivers when they ask about what we're teaching kids, because that word, that three-letter word of sex kind of scares us at times because it's like, oh, you're going to talk all about this sex and blah, blah, blah. No, it's not really about the act of sex per se, it's really about healthy relationships. And it starts with a healthy relationship with oneself and then a healthy relationship with others, because that's what we're hoping for, for our kids. Would you agree? Yeah. In fact, I'll give you a great example of this. So for almost 20 years, my program in universities, military, my main program people hired me for to come do live was called Can I Kiss You? And that was true in middle schools and high schools. And we kept noticing in middle schools and high schools they wouldn't bring it in. A lot wouldn't bring it in. While some very progressive would, others were not. And all we did was change the name. This was about four or five years ago. We went from can I kiss you to safer choices. And suddenly the doors blew open for demand. And it wasn't that the schools didn't want can I kiss you. It's that they were fearful of what the parents thought I was going to say because the word kiss was in there. And if I was going to be talking about kissing, that would lead to other things. Now, what's amazing about that is, you know, they have pregnant students in the front row. So the idea that you, we can't acknowledge even the beginning concepts of consent around, you know, the kiss. Uh, I'm okay with the change of name because if it helps us get in the door and reach tens of thousands more students each year, well, then we're happy to get in those doors and reach those tens of thousands. Because as you said, Lori, this is about skill building. This is about being able to set boundaries for myself being able to honor the boundaries of a partner. And look, if you're doing all of that, the fact is abstinence is going to soar. So this idea that if we talk about it, they're all going to want to do it more than they ever did before. Students say the opposite. Look, if I have these skills, I'm going to be more, I'm going to feel safer saying no when I want to say no, because I'm often saying yes when I want to say no, because I don't have the skills or the confidence to understand that it's okay for me to say no, that that's not mean, that that's not cruel, that I don't have to make the other person happy, but they're lacking all of the skills and knowledge. And I love the fact that it's the skill of communication. That is my favorite standard. We have eight national health education standards, and my favorite is always the communication one, the effective communication skill, because we don't always see it again modeled out there. So we have to teach the basics about communication. Absolutely. And self-worth. 
So yeah. even if I have the skills of communication, if I know that it's okay for me to say no when you give me a choice, but I don't believe that I'm as valuable as you, then even though I have the skill set to know it's okay to say no, I'll still say yes to make you happy because you're more valuable than me. I'm dating you and you're a nine and I think I'm a five. And if I think I'm a five and you're a nine, I'll do whatever I have to do to keep the nine happy because you're more valuable than me. And that's a real, real challenge in society. And it has been forever. That's nothing new. And so it's giving the skills for him to each student to recognize, no, I'm a 10, you're a 10. I'm being the best person I can be each day. That makes me a 10. It's, this isn't yeah. about perfection. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're on this journey. Mm-hmm. And that everybody is deserving of love and respect. Absolutely. Now you kind of answered this question, but I'm going to phrase the question in a way that even if you restate something, it's, it's okay. The Puberty Prof podcast, I focus on a lot of the challenges that preteens face in which some of the challenges are those physical things that we go through as we're growing up. And I'm having some more reviews about what those challenges are. Those are the physical ones. Yet your program, Safer Choices, which is a school assembly program, you provide information about other challenges. And would you explain what some of those challenges are for our audience today? Yeah, there's three main components. I'm usually speaking to students for 45 minutes to 60 minutes at most. And so during that time, we have three focus points. One is blatantly consent, just openly discussing consent. What does that look like? What does that sound like? What are the exact words? All the areas around consent and why you deserve to be given a choice, why your partner does. But the other two are also related about when consent is not able to be given or is not even requested. And so that's bystander intervention. That means your high schooler, your middle schooler is at a party or at a house with other kids and they're all hanging out like a party and somebody's using alcohol or drugs. And we know this is happening in middle schools. Like parents are like, oh, that would never happen. I've never been to a community, never in this country where middle schoolers didn't tell me that they know of alcohol and or drug related parties going on. It's, I've never seen it happen where that, they didn't admit that. So because of that, we know it's happening. So how do you intervene and stop the person who's trying to feed Aaron over there all this alcohol and or other drugs to try to facilitate sexual activity, try to experiment with them sexually? How do you intervene and stop that on behalf of Aaron? Because Aaron's not of sound mind and is vulnerable to this person who's being predatorial and is not a, doesn't have the ability in that moment to, to even realize what's going on. How do the rest of us step up and just do the right thing as a human being? This isn't about being a hero or being courageous. It's about being human. So that's one, because then we could knock down a lot of the stuff that's happening in at the school age. Number two, if this has happened to someone you know, how to make them know that you're okay, you're safe, you're supportive to come forward to, and the exact words that help make that happen for students. Because a lot of times a student's not going to go to an adult but they might tell their best friend if they thought their best friend could handle it. So we have to give those teenagers the right words to help that friend be able to come forward. And then you can help them get the support they deserve by getting them to the right resources, at least offering those resources. Now, some parents and other caregivers might say, well, kids already know about respect and consent. (laughs) Why do you, why are you so passionate about, well, no, we have to talk to them about these topics. This is an easy one. Awareness means nothing if behaviors don't match it. And so your kids may know all the right answers. What we know, the facts we know, are their behaviors don't match. And the way we know those facts 
is that when I'm with an audience, I'm not a lecturer. I'm a conversationalist with the students. So I ask questions, they answer. In every audience in this country, when I've asked, are students saying yes to sexual activity they don't want to have a little bit or a lot? Every audience has said a lot. So they might understand consent. They might understand what their rights are. But if they don't uh, understand that they have the right to really believe that they are valuable and worthy of saying yes or no in those moments, they will goes back to what we just said about the scores of I'm a five, there are nine. If I don't help them realize that, no, 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 they're no more special than you and you're no more special than them, uh, then they're not going to exercise all that knowledge you're telling me they have. They're not going to use it. And so we have to shift from awareness to behavior. If you don't have change behavior when I walk out of the room in an assembly, then all you did was, and sadly, people do this, entertain for an hour. That's what you did. When people change their behaviors because they recognize a light bulb goes off in their mind, I want this for me. I want this for me. Then they will go out and do at least experiment, at least try with doing the right thing for the first time because they know they're worth it and they want that for themselves. And that's the transition we have to make in our schools. Go from just raising awareness, posters, the right curriculum that says all the right things to, hey, what's changing behavior? What gets our students to change their behaviors based on the information? For parents and caregivers, when should they start the conversations at home? I mean, if you're going into, I believe it's middle schools and high schools, when do you recommend a parent and or other caregiver talk to their child on these topics? Yeah. The, the, as soon as they're old enough to start talking about their body, we should be talking about the boundaries aspect and the consent aspect. So we should also make, and you know, you're well aware of this, that normalizing the human body parts and not having different words for certain areas, because we don't do it to other areas of the body. We don't go call this thing that's sticking out of our nose, that thing that sticks out of, I mean, that sticks out of our face. We call it a nose. We call the mm-hmm. elbow, the elbow. We call the hand, the hand. So why we're not calling the vagina, the vagina, or the vulva, the vulva, which is really what they're talking about 90% of the time when they say vagina. Uh, or the penis, the penis, those kind of things need to be normalized because it's just factual. That's a, of course, that's your penis. Of course, that's your fault. That, just like that's your elbow, that's your nose, that's your face, that's your eyes. Uh, of course. So the, when we can normalize that, that empowers them to have a voice around their body. That's super important at the most subtle levels. Two, teaching consent of their body and others. So, hey, let's go back to Aaron. Aaron's a small child now. Aaron, may I have a hug? Aaron says, no, and Aaron's my child and I want Aaron to hug me. What most parents do is go, but Aaron, I love you. The exact manipulative language a dating or intimate partner will use against them in 10 years. And they start to learn it at a very young age that if someone loves me, I owe them loving intimacy. Now that'll get twisted to sexual intimacy is what will happen. But it starts as loving intimacy. And so parents recognizing if you're going to give a choice, may I have a hug? You need to honor the choice. You need your child says yes or no. It's going to hurt when they say no. Sure, I'm not going to. Who's not going to admit it could be disappointing? Of course. And that's okay. That's how they learn. And by them hearing you say, okay, you said no, of course I would honor that. Then they learn, oh, no is supposed to be honored. But usually no is not honored. So when they get to the ages where they start experimenting or somebody wants to experiment with them and they say no, and it's not honored, 
They don't even consider wrong that this person is doing this to them because no was never honored before that. So parents, the more they can understand when I give my child a choice, then it needs to be a true choice. It's even if you say, go mow the lawn, will you mow the lawn by five o'clock? And they go, um, no, I'm not going to get it done today. And you go, well, you're going to mow the lawn by five o'clock. Well, then why'd you ask me? You should have started with a directive. The lawn's going to be mowed today by five o'clock. That's your responsibility. That's what's going to happen. The moment you made it a question, you defaced the idea of choice. Because I've heard people say something to a young person and then go, okay. But sometimes there are rules you have to follow and it is a guardian's choice to say, I need you to do this. Correct. And that's why you have to know the difference between directives and choices. There's nothing wrong with a parent understanding there are times you need to make directives, right? And so just choose, is this a directive or is this a question? If it's a question, make sure it's truly a question. They can say yes or no to. And if it's a directive, don't make it a question. I, I have the same conversation, Lori, with the U.S. military. There are times U.S. military, it has to be a directive. Like, this is what must take place. And there are times it's meant to be a question. Well, then make sure you know the difference. Yeah. And that's another skill set we need to teach. Yes, absolutely. Because that's all around consent. If, if I am not truly giving you a choice, but I'm acting like I am, it, it can feel manipulative, controlling. Uh, it's what can lead to sort of the gaslighting culture that, that can happen. So we want to avoid those. You said before that we need to teach young people how to be proactive bystanders. How can we do that? Well, we have to give them skills. So first of all, we have to help teenagers understand who they are. And that's a conversation not many people are having. They'll say, my kids uh, knows their standards or their values. That's great. But do they take pride in them? Do they, when the pressure's on life and friends are trying to pressure them into something, do they argue, argue logic or who they are? If they argue logic, they're not owning who they are. Let me give you an example of this, Lori. You're at a party. You see the scene I described earlier. I use the names Jesse and Aaron. Jesse's feeding Aaron a bunch of alcohol and trying to get Aaron to another room in the back to do something sexual with. You see this. You go to friends and you go, hey, we need to intervene. And your friends do what most friends do in that situation. We don't know that sexual assault. Jesse would never do that. And they're defending against you intervening. And you keep arguing, well, we're not going to wait. You keep arguing their logic back and forth and nothing's happening because you're arguing logic. If you had just said, hey, who I am is not someone who's going to stand by while this could go horrifically wrong. That's, that's not who I am. Who I am is going to do something. Will you join me? That's a whole different ball game. Because now you can't argue with me. Now, if you go, well, I don't know it's a sexual assault. You might not know. I'm not waiting. Not who I am. The, the who I am gets to the point so much faster. Your friends are trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. And you might normally say, oh, I'll get in trouble. My parents will kill me. Nope. You just say, sorry, not who I am. And you can remove the sorry out of that, by the way. Not who I am. Hey, you guys going to do that? Are you going to do that? Not who I am. It's a much quicker ownership and your shoulders go back when you do that because there's a moment of pride and ownership in that. And I love how you say you can remove the sorry because sometimes it's for who we are. We apologize and we need to yeah. remove that. Why apologize for who we are? And is that some of the right words by saying this is who I am? Well, that's just the power of it is by saying this is who I am. That's why I said remove the sorry because be proud of that, right? Here's the thing though. We have taught, and this has been true forever, that if people don't agree with you, say you're sorry first. Or if what you're giving isn't good news, say you're sorry first. 
Married couples do this around sex all the time, Lori. And when I work with all audiences, like we said earlier, I work with the US military all over the world and I'm working in middle schools. So I ask US military, what's the first word? And by the way, I ask any adult audiences. It doesn't have to be US military. What's the first word your partner will say before they say no to sex? So you say, do you want to have sex tonight? Your partner's about to say no. They're going to say one word before it. Almost always, they'll say sorry. Sorry, not tonight. Sorry, not feeling it. Sorry, have I? Why are you sorry? There's nothing to be sorry for. And all of us, when our spouses, partners do this, should say, please, nothing to be sorry about. I asked you because I want to know whether you want it or not. You don't have anything to be sorry about. So we can teach people to remove that guilt that there's almost a sense of shame that I'm owning this choice versus, uh, hey, yeah, I'm not in the mood. That's okay. (laughs) I don't owe you this. Are there other right words to say in your eyes? Uh, lots, depending on the circumstance. So if you want to give me an example of one, you'd, you'd want me to give an exact words for. Well, going back to being a bystander, because I know the bystander effect that if there's more people that are present, people are less likely to stand up. And it's so- a myth. But I'm going to pause right there. I've debunked it over and over again with audiences, mm-hmm. the bystander effect. Because it's used as an excuse to not do the right thing nowadays. So okay. something happens in these scenes and people go, what was the bystander effect? There were so many people there not doing anything. I didn't do anything either. It's used as an excuse. And as okay. soon as I say, wait a second, what if the person being harmed on the other side of that crowd was your loved one? They'd be like, oh, I'd get through that crowd. I do whatever to do. Oh, what was the difference? Well, I cared about the person. So let me get this straight. It's not the bystander effect. It's when you choose to care enough. When you choose to care enough, you do what it takes. When you choose not to care enough, you use excuses like the bystander effect. And that sounds cold and it's true. And when you say to students, the fact is, if you had to look in the mirror and go, I chose not to care enough about that human being, you wouldn't like hearing yourself say that. And that's not who you'd want to be going back to who I am. Who I am is somebody who wants to care for human beings. Therefore, the bystander effect is not an excuse for me because that's not who I am. And so it brings us right back to that conversation. Okay. So removing then that fiction, say if something is going on, how does, like, I see somebody maybe bringing somebody into a back room or somebody trying to coerce someone to take a substance like alcohol or another drug. What are some of the right words right there? They can, they can, yeah, we teach, we teach a four-step process to every audience and it's a very simple process. One team up. All right. So actually, I'm going to back up one, identify it for what it is. Call it what it is. That's a potential sexual assault happening in front of my eyes right now. Say that to yourself. If you say that's a hookup, if you say that's somebody taking advantage of someone, it's not strong enough language for a lot of students to take action. If you say, oh, my gosh, that's a potential setup of rape or sexual assault. Who I am wouldn't stand by for that. So we have to call it what it is. It's my business because that's who I am. So that's step two. Number three, team up, check in. So I just get a few friends. Hey, can you back me up? Can you help me out here? There's something really messed up going on. Your friends will back you up. They're your friends. They'll be like, let's go. You now have four people. Last step is you say to the the person who's being predatorial, in this case, the character of Jesse. Hey, looks like Aaron's had a lot to drink. Hope you don't mind. We just want to make sure Aaron has a safe ride home. We're going to get Aaron home. All right. So by doing that, you never accused anyone of doing any wrong. So if somebody's like, well, I'm not going to accuse somebody. I don't know they're doing that. That's right. So let's not accuse them of doing any wrong. Let's look out for the person who's being harmed. Now, the second part of that that's powerful 
is that if you do that, the Jesse character, the one acting predatorial, is likely to enrage. It's likely to become enraged, which tells you you were doing the right thing because you made no accusations. Now, this person becomes enraged and the whole place sees it. Now, everybody stays away from Jesse. You went from looking out for Aaron to actually helping everybody see the danger in the room without ever making an accusation. This is a great example, Lori, of why we need programming that teaches behavior. Because when you give those four steps, and I ask students, if you just did those four steps while you were in high school, how many sexual assaults would be stopped, would be avoided from the first place? They say a lot, which means they know it's happening a lot for them to be able to stop it a lot. And they know they have the power to stop it. They just wanted the skills that are realistic to do it. Because you and I both know most parents say, hey, do the right thing in that situation. Do the right thing. I don't know what the right thing is. Like, I know I should do something, but I have no skills. And when I have no skills, most people are paralyzed, right? Paralyzed by uh, paralysis by analysis. I'm overthinking it and I do nothing. Instead of just give me a four simple steps that I can take action and do something. Excellent. I'd like to go to the National Sexuality Education Standards, and they have in the consent and health relationships, they have some performance indicators, and this is for grades three through five. And I want to read some of them and see if you have anything to say. You know, you might have some advice and all. So one is explain the relationship between consent, personal boundaries, and bodily autonomy. That one is easy. My body's my body. It's not yours. You have no rights to my body. I have all the rights to my body. That's autonomy, right? It's saying that mine is mine. So a lot of parents don't understand that though, and what that means. And that means that whoever I'm talking to, my child knows that if I ask you for a hug, it's okay to say yes or no, it's your body. If grandma asks you for a hug, it's okay to say yes or no, it's your body, right? And so helping them understand that and the consent is you agreeing to that and ideally healthy consent is because you want that also. So you're not just saying yes, because it's the nice thing to do, which is what often is happening. We teach young children. It's a nice thing to do to give grandma. It's a nice thing to do to give grandpa. Uh, No, you want to give grandma. If you want to give grandma a hug, then you say yes. If you don't want to give grandma a hug, it's okay to say no, right? You say no. And so helping them understand that at very young ages, Uh, ask your friend, are you a high five or are you a hugger? And if your friend's like, oh, I'm a hugger, so am I. You want a hug? Right, then you can do that. By the way, I do this as an adult. When I meet people, I'm like, are you a handshake or are you a hugger? And if they're like, I'm a hugger, I'm like, so am I. You want a hugger? If they're like, I'm a handshake, I'm like, cool, I'm a handshake. You'd be amazed how many people, when I even say that, are like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, do you prefer a hug when you meet someone or a handshake? And they're like, wow, nobody's ever asked me that before. So it's helping them understand that that autonomy of their body is the youngest ages we can that's appropriate for them to be able to understand with language. Well, how about this one? And thank you for explaining that. I, I love, I love what you're saying. Totally love what you're saying. This one, because I've heard some people say, like, especially parents and caregivers, like I'm a little concerned about people talking to my child about this. This is the full statement. Identify trusted adults, including parents and caregivers that students can talk to about relationships. I I think the red flag that you're probably referring to is a parent who goes, but it's the trusted ones who do the most harm. That that person who gains their trust, uh, there are trusted people who do harm. There's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of trusted people out there doing a lot, a lot of good. 
And so we hear about the horrors that are happening out there. And then where, what, what are the language do you want to use to tell your kids who they can go to? The fact is sometimes your kids are not going to go to you. And if, if you've had kids that have grown to adulthood, you know that is true. Every now and then I meet a parent like, oh, my kid always came to me. And how many children did you have? One. Okay. That tells me everything right there. Because uh, what happens is when you've had more kids, you recognize that all of them are different. And you can open all the doors, and it does not mean they're going to enter the door. It's just not going to always happen. The other thing is they know how to make you feel like they're giving you all the information without giving you all the information. So even parents who came up to me and said, oh, my child told me everything. I'm like, great. Is your is your 18-year-old here tonight? And they're like, yep. And not for the parent of the 18-year-old. Like, so are there things, you know, that as a teenager, your parents might think you tell them, but you're talking like, of course, of course, right? So, but, but that makes the parent feel they know. So the danger is thinking we know everything. That's, there's a bit of arrogance there, but it creates a sense of safety for the parent to believe that, right? It makes us feel better. But the reality is there's a good chance there's things we don't know. And, and that's, by the way, okay, they're living their life. They don't owe us every bit of information about their life. So coming back to this question, yes, if you feel somebody that you trust, and maybe you add into there, some, go to a trusted individual. And if at any point you feel they're manipulating you or they're in any way making it uncomfortable with the information you're sharing, know that it's okay to end that conversation and find a different trusted individual. So if that's your concern, that they go to a trusted individual and that person's going to be the one who manipulates them, give them the red flags to look for so that they know what to look for from somebody who's predatorial. Well, do you have any advice for any young people that might be listening in today? Uh, well, it depends on which topic we want to go into. I mean, young people, I work with young people all the time. Uh, the, the one thing I would say is know that you should be able to say yes or no without guilt, without shame. So if you're in a situation where you don't feel comfortable exercising your voice, for instance, hey, ask before you kiss someone. I'm not comfortable asking. So what you're telling me is you're not comfortable talking about what you want to do intimately with another human being, but you want to engage in that behavior. And, and teenagers and preteens are smart. They'll hear that and go, yeah, that is what I'm saying. And I'm like, does something sound off there? And they're like, yeah. Should you probably be engaging in the behavior you're not comfortable talking about? They're like, no, I probably shouldn't. Like they get it, right? But we have to have that honest conversation with them to help them understand if you're not comfortable asking for what you want, you're not comfortable with what's happening either with this person or, or you're not comfortable with your own body. But those are all important markers to know. And it's okay. It's okay not to be comfortable. It's okay not to be ready. There's no race. You think you're horny now? You'll be horny when you're 40. Like there's, it's not leaving you. And sometimes we just need to say that out loud. And students laugh when you say, look, you're going to be horny when you're 40. And I always do this. Yeah, that's your parents. Just to gross them out a little bit, they'll <laughs> laugh at that. Mm -hmm. um, but they need to understand that. They think it's all happening right now. So I have to work, ha take action on it right now because it's happening right now. And I'll just stop and ask them, do you think when it's the most confusing and it's all new, that that's the best time to engage in what can be high-risk choices. And they're like, no, that's probably not the best time. You're probably going to want to learn enough knowledge that you feel very confident. It doesn't mean you know it all, but confident in the choices you're making. That's the difference. So we're not shaming you when you do make those choices. We're not guilting you when you do. We're trying to help you be equipped to make choices that are right for you moving forward. I thank you so much for being here today, Mike. And is there a way that people can get in touch with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. We love working in schools and doing these programs. It's a very high energy interactive experience for the schools and the students. And, and that's what we love doing. And for parents, we do programs for parents at the schools also. They just go to centerforrespect.com. Just like it sounds, spell it out. It's all words. No, no numbers are in there. Centerforrespect.com. If they want to find me on social media, I'm at Mike Respects with a plural because my last name's a nightmare to spell, as you know, Lori. So it's at Mike Respects on Instagram. It's true anywhere. They can find us there. But centerforrespect.com is the best place to go if they want to learn more, get our books or DVDs or look at bringing us to their schools. Excellent. And I'll make sure I have a link in today's description so people can easily find how to get in touch with you. I'll put that in there. We were speaking earlier about you need results. And we survey every audience we work with, including high schools. 94 to 97% of students say they're more likely to ask first, more likely to intervene, more likely to create a safer environment for survivors to come forward of all genders and demographics in one hour. That's how we, that's the key is getting those results so that the lives, they have the skills they need. It goes back to what we said, awareness versus skills. Well, thank you so much for being here today and for doing what you're doing. Again, it's Center for Respect, and I've checked out the website. It's a really neat website, so please check it out. And for our audience members today, thank you so much for listening in. I hope that you've learned more about consent and healthy relationships. And again, Mike, I thank you for being here. Thank you, Lori, for having this conversation. It's, I love the questions you asked. were awesome. Thank you. For our audience, thanks again. And I hope you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.